Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm going to sit down with nonprofit industry experts, fundraisers, marketers, and everyone in between to get real and discuss what it takes to build that movement that you've been dreaming of. I created the Nonprofit Nation podcast to share practical wisdom and strategies to help you confidently find your voice, definitively grow your audience, and effectively build your movement. If you're a nonprofit newbie or an experienced professional who's looking to get more visibility, reach more people, and create even more impact, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. All right. Hi, everyone. Thanks again for joining me for another episode of Nonprofit Nation. Today, we have a special guest, uh, Liz LeClaire. Liz LeClaire is someone I've been following online for quite a while. We've been connected virtually, tweeting at each other. I've been stalking her on LinkedIn. (laughs) And I'm just so glad to finally have her here. Proud Canadian, proud to call herself a fundraiser and a feminist. Liz brings more than 15 years of experience to her role as the director of major gifts at the QEII Foundation in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Liz is also a director with the CFRE. She's the current chair of the AFP Women's Impact Initiative. And in 2019, Liz published an op-ed with the CBC on her experience being sexually harassed by a donor, which we are going to cover, we're going to talk about today. She's also a co-founder of the National Day of Conversation, which is a day dedicated to raising awareness on sexual harassment of fundraisers. So welcome, Liz. Thanks for coming. Thank you for the invite. And, And likewise, it's been really great to finally meet you in real life. I know. I know. If we can so call it people. that via Zoom. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I know, right? So many yeah. virtual meetings. So many yeah. people that I really hope I get to meet in person at some point. Yeah. So yeah. let's just begin really quickly with your story, how you got involved with nonprofit work. Sure. Uh, so I live in Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is on the East Coast of Canada. And I came out here to do my undergraduate in political science and really had this this idea that I was going to go work at the United Nations, that was my big plan, it was something I was really passionate about, really hardcore model UN nerd when I was younger and still kind of am. Very yes, Leslie, I love that. Leslie Nope in Parks and Rec. That was yes. my favorite episode. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, people that know me that have listened to this podcast, they know that Leslie Nope is my life goals. I love yeah. her. Exactly. So, um, so that was my big plan. I uh, went and did uh, actually an internship there and discovered that uh, for me, that just wasn't, it just actually wasn't a fit. I finally got to this opportunity to go work at the World, World Food Program. And what I loved the most and what I was most passionate about was not the actual machinations of what was going behind the scenes and all the politics, but I ended up um, as the intern managing the walk to end hunger. And that hooked me. And that's where I got hooked into fundraising. I, I was doing a public relations degree, loved the PR side, loved the writing, but did not love sitting behind a desk or being the person behind a computer screen. I really wanted to be out meeting with people. And and so that's, that's the rest is history. I kind of um, ended up from there pursuing roles where I thought I could use my skill set to change the communities that I live in directly. And I wanted to see things really tangible happen. And so that's that's where this has all come that. from. Yeah. Yes. yeah that's, 
that's the origin story, I guess, if you want to call it that. I did the walk for hunger. I think I did that in elementary school and that was the very first time I had done fundraising too. So asking people to sponsor me. I love that it's kind of like a foot in the door, those kind of events. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where, you know, when we look at fundraising and all the different variations of it, you know, some people say about events, you know, that they're kind of dying off and I, I, or that they don't serve a purpose. And I think when you look at them much like gift planning or estates and bequests, you kind of have to look at events as a long-term game engagement. Like there's so so many people that get their passion when they're younger or at some point in their life from participating in one of those. So I just think it's a really great, great way to think of it. So yeah, so that's where that's where I started, and then I've been in uh, healthcare, education, and some social service, frontline service roles for the last few years, uh, oh. for the last fifteen years. Yeah, so that's that's where I come from, and my Great. background. So, right now, you're the director of Major Gifts at yes, the foundation. It- okay, and your writing, your advocacy, really focuses a lot on holding donors and the entire philanthropic sector in general accountable for, you know, transgressions and abhorrent behaviors. So the very first piece that I read by you was that op-ed in the CBC, where you describe in pretty vivid detail your experiences Mm. with sexual harassment and even abuse by older wealthy male donors. Why did you decide to come forward? And why did you decide to, to talk about this and call for a, what you call a nonprofit Me Too movement? So I was very fortunate, first of all, to work with a really phenomenal reporter at the Canadian broadcasting company, Francis Willick. So how it kind of happened is I attended Toronto Congress in the fall of 2019. Yeah. 2018? Oh my God. Now I'm, it's, it's getting so far back. We'll link to the article. Yeah. um, Sorry. Now I don't even remember. Essentially coming out of the height, the real height of the Me Too movement. um, There was a lot of talk at Congress that year. Uh, There were two plenary speakers. One was Hadia Rodrique. She was a black lawyer on Bay Street and she wrote a piece called um, Black on Bay Street for the Globe and Mail and talked about her experience with racism. And when she was actually closing her session, one of the things she said in it was that it was a responsibility of those with privilege to speak, not those who are already marginalized. Mm-hmm. And that really stuck with yes. me. And I sat through the rest of the conference listening to a lot of things where, you know, people were bringing up these topics around me too and what was happening. And then we went to the closing plenary and Sam LaProd, who's a fundraiser out of Ottawa, was our, our host and asked some really provocative questions. And the room was just really, you could tell people were like, I want to do something, but I don't know what. I want to yes. talk about this, but I don't yes. know what. How do I start? And I remember Sam asking the question, are we going to be able to change the sector? And I remember hearing a lot of humming and hawing and these two young women that were sitting in front of me that I knew had just started in the sector because I'd sat with them at a couple of lunches were kind of looking around and I could see, I was like, this is not the kind of sector I want them to start their career. And so I came home and I, I said to a friend of mine, who's a journalist, do you think if I wanted to tell this story that anyone would read it? And he said, absolutely. absolutely. And I went from there and made a decision to share my experience. The reason why we went with the really vivid descriptions up front was to essentially get the attention of the reader. Because I think a lot of people at that point were thinking Me Too was all about these nuances of what harassment was. And uh, we wanted people to know that if, you know, if I felt comfortable sharing what had happened to me, we needed to let people know how serious this gets. So that's why. And I do continue to share my story in the hopes that it will 
I don't want to traumatize people or re-traumatize them. And I don't expect anyone else to do it, but I know that it's a way for me to shed a light on something that is, is really toxic and, and very prevalent in our sector. So exactly because I, I read the statistics that were shared by the CBC where they said about 70% of professional fundraisers in Canada identifies female. Most of the executives are, of course, the same in North America, same in mm-hmm. America. The vast majority of high net worth donors are older, influential men. And when they conducted their survey, they found that 25% of female respondents and 7% of male respondents had actually experienced sexual harassment at work. Do you think those numbers are, are accurate or is it higher? They're- well, no, we've been proven, it's been proven that they're much lower than, you know, the actual reality. So uh, AFP did another survey in 2020. So it did a random sampling of uh, half the membership. So about 15,000 people and got our response. I think just over, I want to say 1,700 people responded. And it actually turns out that 75% of the women that responded to the survey said at some point in their career, they'd experienced some form of sexual harassment. So we're talking three quarters of our profession. The male respondent numbers remain somewhat similar, but the other things that were asked about were things like gender-based violence or other kinds of forms of discrimination, but they also, the researchers at Ohio State also looked at the intersections between race, gender identity, and also all these other factors and, and found that women of color and LGBTQ plus fundraisers experience more severe forms of harassment. We always suspected that 25% was actually quite low. So yeah, no, it's definitely, we're talking about three quarters of the women that you meet at some Mm -hmm. point. Once the actual descriptors of what sexual harassment is, is put in front of them, Mm -hmm. they they realize that they've actually experienced it. Because a lot of people will say, well, I've, he may have said something to me, but that's not really harassment. They think Mm -hmm. it, they think it has to be like a Harvey, Harvey Weinstein situation for it to be valid. And that's not true. So sorry, mom, if you're listening, but I remember talking to my mom, we had a conversation about the Me Too movement Uh and she said to me, don't you just think it's a little much? It's just a little much. This doesn't really happen all the time. And it took me talking her through her own experiences and saying, you, are you sure this has never happened to you in the workplace or you've never been talked to like this by a man that was in a position of power or anyone in a position of power? And once you describe, like you just said, what yeah. harassment actually is and what it constitutes, then people's eyes open and they say, well, I didn't, I just thought that was boys being boys or men being men or, you exactly, know. Yeah. Yeah. And women, I mean, this, we have to be clear about this. Women are guilty of, of doing, Very true. doing it as well. But also too, for me, what was really hard to get some women to understand is their role in conditioning other younger women that this is normal and not because they're bad people. And I think that, you know, this is something that people take really personally. They think that I'm accusing them of, of grooming young women and that's not that's not the case, but there's a socialization process we go through as we're growing up. It's handed down from generation to generation. I mean, it slowly starts to get eroded, but I mean, even just looking at the fact that we're still arguing and discussing dress codes in schools and what girls, what girls can wear. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we're, we're getting there, but every generation pushes back harder and, and defines their boundaries a little stronger. And, so I think, yeah, a lot of older women in particular, especially those who grew up in the 50s and 60s, this was what what it was like at work, you know? And it, it's sort yeah. of that expectation that you will just swallow it and kind of 
move on because that's how they handled it. And I think what we're trying to say here is that it doesn't have to be this way. Exactly. So, so what advice would you give to a young fundraiser just starting out that maybe has seen something or experienced something? What would be what would be your advice? Yeah. So, I mean, I've been doing some workshops and, and sessions with, you know, some organizations in Canada. And one of the things that my colleague and I always emphasize is report. Report, 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 report. And the reason is, is because part of the reason why organizations don't take this seriously enough is that people are not reporting it. And it's not the onus is on the person reporting. The onus is on the organization to respond properly. But if you don't report it, then there is no pattern of behavior. And no matter what it is, no matter how small you think it is, you need to tell your supervisor. If you have a bad feeling in your stomach, always trust your gut. Your gut is there for a reason. I remember speaking at Toronto, AFP Toronto had me come speak and there was a young woman in the audience that said, you know, there's this donor that really gives me this icky feeling, but he's never Mm -hmm. done anything that's like, I could say, you know, Mm -hmm. I said, but you don't know what he's done to someone else. Right. So if you don't report it, there could be another person that's already told someone about it and they will never know that there's a pattern of behavior. And a pattern of behavior is the thing that all organizations always point to is if they don't have a pattern, there's nothing that they can do. I just always encourage people to report and how your organization responds to you, I think is indicative of the kind of place it is. Mm -hmm. And I think may be a good indicator of whether or not you want to continue working for a place. That is Absolutely. not. Yeah. That is not responsible and that doesn't take any interest or show any concern for what mm-hmm. you've gone through. Is this part of why you founded the National Day of Conversation? Can you tell us about that? It is. Yeah. So I wrote the op-ed and a really wonderful mm-hmm. woman out of Ontario named Wanda Deschamp uh, contacted me. And we talked it through and talked it through and just were trying to figure out how do we raise awareness, particularly in Canada around this issue. You know, the U.S. was having a real moment, but in Canada, it still felt very, as it always does, we're usually about 10 years behind the U.S. in anything that happens. And we were thinking, how do we put this out front and center in people's faces so that they can't ignore this? But also too, the other part of it was around providing resources. So we created a website, thanks to uh, Cindy Wagman at The Good Partnership and dayofconversation.org. And we have a lot of resources there for Canadian fundraisers on where they can go to get help, what kind of information they need, and just really around it. Yeah, there's lots of interviews and uh, fundraising everywhere. Simon and Nikki were really generous in hosting a day virtually for us as well. So we've we've been really fortunate to have a lot of support from our, our friends in the sector. This year, we're kind of trying to reimagine what it might look like to be a more inclusive event. Mm-hmm. Um, and part mm-hmm. of the evolution of the thinking was around Black Lives Matters and Stop Asian Hate. And just, we didn't want this to be a white woman's conversation. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of nuances that we couldn't cover under the current scope of it. So it's it's kind of in a process of being looked at and reimagined. So we'll let you know when we have more information on that. Yes, absolutely. I love that. I love to be a part of amplifying it any way that I can. And I love that you, as well as I think a lot of the Me Too movements, movements against, you know, movements against harassment in the workplace are trying to be more inclusive and take in more diverse perspectives. Well, yeah, I think, sorry to interrupt, but... um, No, it's okay. 
I mean, Me Too was, when you look at it, Me Too was founded by Tarana Burke, who was a black woman. Yeah. And then, but no one, you know, the the prominence in, in uh, the general. Then it got taken over by Rose McGowan and prominent white celebrities. Exactly. So this is about taking a step back. When we talk about thinking about the role that white women can play in these movements, it's not about taking them over. It's about creating connections in the space in order for us to have all of these conversations. And I think it's so important for us to remember where they originate from. And at the time I was angry that no one was listening and I'm glad Mm -hmm. that I was able to have that opportunity to speak up, but now there's an opportunity to reshift and create more space. I was very fortunate to have someone who participated in NDOC and planning sit me down and have a conversation with me about the reason why you're not having an inclusive group of volunteers is because you're, you've created a dialogue for white women. And uh, gender discrimination is certainly one area, but there are many, many nuances to oppression. So I'm very grateful f- to her for sitting me down and speaking with me about that and calling me in. So I feel, I feel compelled that this has to be, if we're going to do it again, it has to be a bigger, bolder conversation again about really what, what are our issues as a sector. So Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for that. And now a word from our sponsor. I'm here to tell you that this podcast episode is sponsored by my newest free training, social media in 20 minutes per day. This is where I give you my exact framework and process to schedule and organize your time so that social media does not take over your entire day and to-do list. Watch the replay for free at social media in 20, that's two zero, the numbers two zero dot com. And be sure to tag me on social to let me know what you think. That's social media in 20.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Another topic where you're very outspoken. <laughs> I love it. It's so great. It <laughs> Equity and racial justice within the sector. Mm-hmm. And I loved, well, you've written several articles that I have loved, but I especially loved a LinkedIn piece entitled Stop Telling Me to Be Nice. Mm-hmm. And I just want to read a couple of quotes from it and we can discuss it. So you wrote, White women, when you're okay calling out misogyny and sexism, but will not or refuse to call out racism in our sector, you are part of the problem. When you tell me to be nice, you're asking me to give up my agency, my power, and my opinion. So I think this is incredible. And I know you did get a lot of pushback. I don't want to say, I don't know if pushback is the word, feedback, opinions. People were very defensive. Mm -hmm. Anytime you call out white silence, people are going to take it personally. So tell me about some of the fallout from that article and then just tell me, you know, where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. How can we stop being silent? Yeah. Without getting into the details, I mean, we've had a number of things happen over the last year, not just with Black Lives Matter, but with the growth of the community-centric fundraising movement, Yes, which I respect deeply and have a lot of passion for, but I, I'm no part of the founding, no no part of any of that. I mean, all of that goes out to Vu, Lay, Michelle Murray, and the group out in Seattle that founded that movement mm-hmm. um, because they, they saw a need. And they've been actively attacked by a number of people in our sector 
you know, maybe those those people don't think that they were attacking them. I, I think that's part of the problem. We have a lot of people in our sector that think that what they consider analytical, you know, emotion, like removing emotions from the conversations and really diving deep into certain things is the way to look at things. But I think it somehow looks over the origins of why this movement exists in the first place. Mm-hmm. And also a lot of fundraisers who are trying to equate CCF with um, a fundraising technique, which it is not. Right. right. I, which I, I I don't know why we keep getting stuck on this. You know, I've, I've had a lot of, especially a lot of consultants really push back at me and say, you know, like you're not being the way you're talking is not kind. It is not, you know, whatever. And I keep reminding them that the reason why people like myself and others are frustrated is because this whole complacency, white complacency Mm -hmm. we have is the problem in the first place. So the entire argument they're having with us or with me, I, I won't say us because I am not a person of color. I am not a fundraiser, BIPOC fundraiser who's experienced any of the numerous, mm-hmm. you know, things that mm-hmm. we've been told about. I mean, like, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent no, here. When you look fine. at, when you look at uh, Collecting Courage, the book that was written by 14 Black fundraisers, yeah. uh, mostly women, but one men, Mide as well. You know, it's not like these stories are not there. They're there for us to read. They're there for us to listen to. People in the sector who are people of color are saying we have a massive problem. So to argue the techniques of fundraising in relation to a movement around racial justice, to me, seems like you're completely missing the point. Completely um, missing the point. I think so. I think we're completely we're missing the point. being tone deaf. Well, it's, it's like someone yelling at you, your house is on fire, your house is on fire, and we're all going to burn. And a person running up with a small teaspoon of water and saying, but what about handwritten cards and throwing it? I'm fixing this. It's just, yeah. I just the response is inadequate. To me, anyways, that's how I feel. I feel like we were watching our sector burn to the ground <laughs> mm-hmm. in some ways because we will we refuse to move faster. And what I what I think is going to happen is that we are either doomed to become irrelevant as a profession, and something else will replace us, mm-hmm. or we are going to just see a massive continued friction between those who are calling us out to do better and those who want to remain the same. And uh, Rachel D'Souza, who's a consultant with Gladiator Fundraising um, out of Baltimore, she, I believe it's Baltimore, yeah, she po- or St. Louis, sorry, um, she posted a thing around white backlash and there's always been white backlash, mm-hmm. resistance to change, because it doesn't serve us. Change doesn't serve the white majority mm-hmm. in, it, in any profession or any part of the world what serves the white majority is the same status quo because it's comfortable for us. So I think what's getting people's backs up is the realization, unfortunately, that they've been participating in something that's been harmful for a very long time. And I understand that concern. I have that concern and I'm not happy about it, but I'm also not going to sit by and and let it continue to fester. And I mean, that's how I, that's how sexual harassment happens is that people don't want to address the elephant in the room. Yes. 75% of people in our sector or women in our sector have said they've been sexually harassed, but it is not in the interest of the majority of men in the C-suite or executive or in boards to address this because they know who the people are or they're friends with them or saying mm-hmm. no to a donation. And it brings up uncomfortable conversations about maybe their own behavior. Exactly. So the lens by which I've come into this has been a gender oppression lens, but what it has done is expanded my perspective significantly on 
what we are not doing to be inclusive or protect our people. And I've been accused, somebody said to me a while back via Twitter that I have a trauma shield I throw up every time I enter these conversations that I use sexual harassment as a way to fend off criticism. And I don't think of it that way. What I think of it is this is my way to relate to what other people are going through. I will yes. I will never know what racism feels like, but I know what it feels like to tell people that you've been sexually harassed and people to tell you that no, and they start gaslighting you. Yeah, It's yeah. not the same, but it's part of the same umbrella. So I can't stand around and talk about one issue without talking about the rest. Exactly. And, you know, I, I realize some people feel that my role with AFP, the Women's Impact Initiative, that I have a position of responsibility to bring people into the fold, but I personally haven't seen being nice and saying it in a nice way is not moving us forward. Nope. Nope. So, and there's so many quotes, you know, Brene Brown talks about, when you are having these uncomfortable conversations, the fact that you can avoid these conversations means you're coming from a place of privilege in the it's first privilege. place. Mm-hmm. So when people say, we don't want to talk about it, or this is making us uncomfortable, or, oh, this is too political. Why don't we just keep fundraising? So when I did the keynote for the Classy Collaborative in 2020, the week after George Floyd was murdered, I changed my entire keynote at the very last minute. Also, I I am a fan of Classy. I think they were not they were not exploring as diverse a speaker panel as they probably could have and we were calling them out on that as well and they definitely listened, but people didn't want to hear what I had to say. I mean, people said this is a fundraising conference. Why are we talking about racial equity, um racial justice? Why are we talking about these hard issues that, you know, things like how COVID relates to that and how it's sort of all intertwined and with the work that we do. So I appreciate anyone, especially using the privilege that you and I have to really amplify and and shed light on these issues and encourage other white people to come forward, you know? Yeah. I think a lot of people often say too, that they're scared, you know, that they feel- They're going to say the wrong thing. That's yeah. what I get a lot. How do I talk? How do I start? I, I'm worried I'm going to trip over my words. I'm worried I'm going to look foolish. And I'm worried I'm going to make things worse because I don't know the words to use. So yeah, what is your advice? I always say to people, there's it's kind of chicken and egg. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of reading you can do. Yes. Um, you know, like there's a lot of, it's not like there isn't information out there. Right. I think one, one of the things that always, I think people get reminded often is that don't ask your black or BIPOC, uh, any mm-hmm. Black, Indigenous, or people of color in your life to explain to you what this what this right. is. I mean, How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi is there. In Canada, we have a great book called The Skin We're In, where Desmond Cole writes about what it's like to be a Black person in Canada. You know, we have Collecting Courage, which you can purchase, which is an amazing book and very, you know, it's not a long book. It's an easy read. And by lots of fundraisers in our sector, there's anti-racism workshops. You can take, you know, just spend some time reading and reflecting and really ask yourself, what are the things that I am doing in my life to either create space for or to lift up people of color, Black, Indigenous people in our sector who deserve to have the same, if not more, uh, opportunity to speak because we have so much to learn. 
why do we have to keep listening? I, I, to me, I think this is part of an evolution of our sector. I mean, I think mm-hmm. techniques and fundraising te- techniques are certainly, there's value in that. I mean, I sit on the board of CFRE. I understand, you know, the value in understanding the fundamentals, but I also question the fundamentals. You know, I think that's part of the work we're doing at CFRE and, and which the board, we've been having very in-depth discussions around what constitutes professionalism. What does it mean yes. to be a professional? You know, what constitutes best practice? How do you know that that's going to work outside of a very white dominant, very mm-hmm. fundraising specific organization? Mm-hmm. And what about all of those community groups and people who've been fundraising for years as part of their culture? I mean, I think um, Edgar Villanueva talks about that a lot in decolonizing well. Yeah. And then any go into any black community anywhere and they've been doing this this work for a long time but not being paid for it. And the origins yeah. of how so many white women end up ended up in our profession is something we need to look at. You know, I think the origins of it, how we ended up here, how the power dynamics you know, gender dynamics continue to play out around leadership versus um, other positions. I, I think white women we've spent a lot of time building this profession into an image that we wanted. Mm -hmm. And now that it's being pulled apart, it's almost people's entire identities are being torn up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think Fleur Larson, who's a DEI trainer in the U S says it best. She was interviewed by Michelle Murray for her podcast, the ethical rainmaker, which is that white women come to fundraising with a deep sense of martyrdom Mm -hmm. that we're giving up a lot to be here. So when someone takes a look at you and says you're doing harm, it's fundamentally tearing apart the core of of some people's being. And I think that's where we get stuck. Identity. I think it's people's identities are wrapped up in this. So um, absolutely. And we could talk for hours about the nonprofit (laughs) sector and martyrdom. Yes. Yes. I'm sure we could. uh, that, That is a really incredible, that's a really incredible point. Because it is our identity. It is. Well, it, unlike yeah. any other profession, I think. I mean, there are a lot of professions where your identity is like a teacher, a nurse. Your identity is who you are. You know, there's lots mm-hmm. of different professions. But in the sector, I do think we tend to say, oh, you, no one understands the work that we do. And no one understands how hard it is. And Well, I, I think also, too, I would just put this out there. And again, this might be a controversial statement. And there's always exceptions to the rules. I understand that. But when you look at how people come to the profession, most of the white women I've met say, well, I fell into it. It's Mm -hmm. something I just, or, you know, it was something that they were passionate about. A lot of the women I meet who are coming from communities of color will say that I was doing this because our community needed this. And this is my, that's how my career evolved. So there's a very big difference between falling into something because it feels good and doing it because your community needs you. And more often than not, that's the paradigm I'm seeing. So I think the origins with which white women come to the sector, not all, but a lot. And I, I, I will absolutely say the caveat that there are, you know, you get into this argument around Black Lives Matter. A lot of white people would say, well, what about white people too? We also suffer discrimination mm-hmm. and poverty. And, but you're looking at systems. Mm-hmm. How are systems developed and built to keep certain people out. And I I don't think white women have built a sector that is inclusive to white women, but we have not done a good job of being inclusive to everybody else. So whether we mean to or not, 
and I'm part of that. And I think that's one thing too. I get criticized a lot is like people are like, well, you're you're a white woman too. I'm like, oh my God, I look, put my hand up. I have been a part of the problem for a long time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I know that. I'm not, this is not, Liz is absconded from everything and, and perfect. This is me saying, let's look at ourselves, you know? And I can do that because I am one. Yeah. He's having the courage to start, which I think a lot of people, I hope, will be inspired by this conversation, inspired by your writing. Thank you. To say, you know, imperfect action is better than no action. And expect criticism. Yeah. And expect criticism, but don't don't let it stop you because it's a learning opportunity. Right. And tag us on Twitter because we're probably getting some kind of criticism from someone (laughs) somewhere. (laughs) Oh, always. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. And I will not do everything right. I will not do things perfectly, but yes, imperfect action is better than none at all. And when people call you in or call you out, listen and, and, and listen to it, but take away from it what you feel is really valuable. I mean, there's, there's criticism that's valuable and then there's criticism for the sake of criticism and, you know, but I, I said once, you know, you put things on the internet, you're going to get feedback. Not all of it positive. That's kind of how it works. That and works. that's okay. I love that's that. That's all right. Well, thank you so much for being here. This is this has really been pretty eye-opening, very just meaningful conversation. I hope that it's been thought-provoking um, for the people listening. So tell us how we can follow along with your work, with your thoughts. Twitter. Well, I am, yeah, I am on Twitter at, at Liz underscore Hallett, H-A-L-L-E-T-T, which is uh, my maiden name. I know it was really funny. I was talking to Paul Nazareth and he called me Liz Hallett and I was like, oh gosh, I haven't heard that in a while. So that I'm on there. I'm pretty active on there. LinkedIn, you can find me there as well, uh, Liz LeClaire. And then I will be stepping down. Uh, this is my last few months as chair of the Women's Impact Initiative. So um, there will be a new chair coming in but really excited to be involved with some new projects coming up this fall, which I'm not allowed to talk about yet because they're, no, no, it's all good. Um, uh, this, this might come out after the fall. So maybe you could talk about them. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I don't know if you can edit this out. So I'll be joining, um, I'll be joining the board of the African-American Development Officers wow. Association. Yeah. So I'm, I'm joining that, which is pretty exciting. Birgit has been doing that for, almost 40 years, I believe. And it's now officially becoming a nonprofit. She'll be the new executive director and I'm joining the first board for that. So that group, I am absolutely excited to learn from, listen to, and help support growth. And then I'm going to be working on another project with a few other fundraisers around trying to write something around what, what can white women do to make this sector better. So hoping hoping that we can put something together that's of value. I mean, again, seeking out information and resources from a lot of other people yes. um, because I don't know everything, but uh, we don't, we do know a lot of people to talk to and trying to create a, a, way, a space where women can come together and do something meaningful instead of just talking about it. And I think people like you, Julia, who ask these questions and are willing to, to share this are a really important part of that dialogue. So Thank I'm you. really grateful. Yeah. Thanks. Well, I'm grateful to your work too. I can't wait to see what's in store. And just thanks again for coming and, and sharing your personal story, your advice, and just being open and honest and real with, with the listeners. So thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure.
Well, hey there. I wanted to say thank you for tuning into my show and for listening all the way to the end. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, and you'll get new episodes downloaded as soon as they come out. I would love if you left me a rating or a review because this tells other people that my podcast is worth listening to. And then me and my guests can reach even more earbuds and create even more impact. So that's pretty much it. I'll be back soon with a brand new episode. But until then, you can find me on Instagram at juliacampbell77. Keep changing the world, you nonprofit unicorn. Thank you.